Father, the gospel says that our lives are now hid in Christ, that those who have faith in you, those who have recognized their need of forgiveness and have received grace upon grace in Christ, are secure in your arms. And Lord, we ask that you would make this gospel grace new and fresh to us today, that we would realize all that we already have in Jesus, and that it would change us, we ask, in his perfect name. Amen. So we typically start the year by working through a section of Old Testament teaching, and then after Easter, we dive into a section of New Testament teaching. And this is really our pattern. We work through sections of Scripture in our times of of teaching and sermons. Why? Because we, we really believe that what we need is a word from the Lord. We don't need a word from man, the wisdom of a person, the sort of latest blog entry or the musings of a 32-year-old. We need wisdom from God, and he has given that to us in his word. And so we're, we're very committed to this old-school practice of taking a chunk of scripture, working our way through it till we're done, taking another chunk of scripture and working through that until we're done, and you know what we're going to do after that, right? Yeah. Uh, so on and so forth until Christ uh, returns. And today we're going to start in uh, the book of James, the letter of James. And I, I love this book. Uh, it's so full. <laughs> I guess mainly because I get to say things like, James says you must do this. You know. <laughs> no, I do love this book, honestly, not just for egotistical reasons. Um, I love this book because it's so full of practical wisdom. It's so full of practical wisdom that it's actually sometimes referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And James is a man who, who wrestles with God and talks with God and brings the gospel to bear on the real stuff of life. And it's great because James is, is Jesus' brother. And so he's a man who literally would have wrestled with God and talked with God and, and, and really saw Christ face to face and up close and, and worked out the implications for, for his own life and now writes to teach his first hearers and of course us about these, these important truths. And it's an encouraging book because it shows us that as Christians in the gospel, we're not afraid to wrestle with hard questions. Now understand, I'm not saying we'll always have the answers Certainly not neat answers, but we're, we're not afraid to, to wrestle through hard questions. And James actually begins this book by diving in and wrestling with some of the hardest questions of all, questions to do with trials and, and suffering. And these are such important questions to us because we all have those moments when we look at the world, we look at ourselves, we look at our circumstances, and we just think, God, what are you, what are you doing here? How, how, how are these, how's this a good idea? How is it that, that these things are going to work together for good? Sometimes in, in our quiet moments, we even doubt, you know, because of these things, surely, surely God doesn't love me like he says. Sometimes perhaps we even doubt that he even exists. That, that, that's my struggle and that's my fight with doubt. I, I, I rarely wrestle with kind of like, is this particular doctrine or that particular doctrine true? I wrestle with, what if all of this is just complete nonsense, you know? And when we look at our lives and we see the struggles, it's easy for us to feel that way. And so how good it is to have this section of teaching in James that tackles these questions head on. In our text, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the certainty of suffering, the purpose of suffering, and then how we can navigate suffering. The certainty of suffering, the purpose of suffering, and then how we can navigate suffering together. Let's dive in then with the certainty of suffering. And it comes in verse two. Read it there with me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various 
kinds. The reality that trials will come in this life, the sorrow and the sadness, the hardship or the difficulty, the opposition or the persecution, the disappointment, the betrayal, the uncertainty and the fear that we all have to deal with in life. These trials will come. What form will these trials take? Unfortunately, these trials will come in various kinds, various kinds. So the minor irritants of life, you know, those things that make you, man, Life isn't always easy. Stress at work, a financial conundrum, the latest fight with your spouse. But not just those minor irritants, also the more major events of life. Those events that make you stop and say, I'm not sure I can make it through this. When that loved one dies or that diagnosis hits or that relationship Ends. Trials come in all sorts of different shapes and, and sizes. And our verse makes clear that they are a certainty, an absolute certainty. Unfortunately, there is no if in this verse. Read it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, when you meet trials of various kinds. The trouble it comes. It's a matter of time. It's a fact of life. It's just the way things are. And of course, we know that you don't need to live very long to have experienced that this is the case. You don't have to live very long to know that this is true. You look at the world around and you think, things are just not the way that they're meant to be. You read about storms that have ripped through the south and have taken the lives of fellow citizens, of our our brothers and our sisters. You wrestle through things yourself, that season of infertility, followed by a miscarriage just when hope appeared to be done. You look at the world and and know that suffering is there. And then the more you get to know yourself, the more you know. It's not just the world in general, but also how others have impacted you. The more you understand your own story, the more you understand how impacted you have been by those around you, by that loved one who did things or neglected to do things that harmed you in in a deep way. That friend who said such a careless word, that thoughtless word, that angry word that, that really stuck with you. We're impacted by the world. We're impacted by by others. Suffering is a reality for us. But of course, and perhaps unfortunately, the gospel has also taught us that suffering isn't just caused by things out there, not just by the world in general or by people out there, but suffering also finds a source in in our own hearts. You know, in, in my world, there will always be suffering because I am in it. And I inflict suffering upon others in ways that I know, uh, and in ways I don't know. And, and you do the same. We all do unknown damage to ourselves and others. We know that suffering is a part of the human experience, a certainty in this life. So why then does our passage make a point of addressing that? And why are we spending time upon something that seems so obvious? Is it not obvious that this is the case? What, what, why is it so important to highlight it? I think the answer to that question is that there's something positive at play in this reminder. We're not just having this sort of morose, morbid, life is hard, uh, let's feel bad about it and about ourselves. Rather, we're trying to get towards something more positive. I, I like how Peter puts it in his letter. In Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, it's the next book after James, if you want to turn there. And in, in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love that verse. 
Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes and tests you as though something strange were happening. See, see Peter and James here in, in chapter 1 are reminding us and emphasizing the certainty of suffering so that we won't be surprised when it comes to us. We won't be surprised as if something strange were happening to us, but we'll instead have steel in our spine that will enable us to respond appropriately. As I was thinking about this, I went to lunch with a couple in our church because Rosie and I are going to Tanzania at the end of this month. We're going to spend time with our missions partners there where we dug the wells. We'll be preaching actually first in, in Kenya for Mbumi Makuku and then teaching for the t- pastor's conference in Tanzania for, for that week. And in preparation for this, this trip that we're, we're, we're looking forward to and excited about, we, we met with a, another couple in the congregation who have spent a good bit of time in Africa and have taught quite a lot in Africa. And so we just wanted to glean some wisdom from them. And uh, it was a really helpful time. And then at, at the end of the lunch, uh, they said to me, oh, just one more thing. Just one more thing. It's important for you to know that as a male in that culture, they'll want to honor you when they have dinner together. And the way that they'll honor you is by giving you the parts of the meat that are sort of the most valuable to them. And so do not be surprised, as though something strange were happening to you, (laughs) when they bring you the chicken giblets, the heart, the liver, the intestines, the gizzard, right? Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Why did they tell me this? Why did they tell me this? They told me this so that I'd be prepared. (laughs) And I'd be prepared to respond appropriately. You understand? They're not doing this because they hate you. You can imagine me. Why why do you hate me that you're giving me this meal, right? Okay. They're doing it to honor you. And you need to know, you need to have an understanding about this and be forewarned about it in order that you might respond in an appropriate way. And in a same but, of course, um, profoundly more serious way. Here, James is saying, understand that the trouble comes. Because when it comes, I don't want you to be dismayed. I don't want you to look around and be taken aback and shocked and think, how could these things have happened? How could they have happened to me? Does the Lord not love me? Does he even exist? No, James says. Suffering is a reality of life. And suffering is a reality of the Christian life. And he tells us these things so that forewarned we would have steel in our spine and be ready to respond appropriately. The certainty of suffering. The second thing we see in our text after the certainty of suffering is the purpose of suffering. And we see this really in verses 3 and 4. Let's, let's look at it together. For you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. A key word here when we're trying to understand that the purpose of our suffering is the word testing that appears in verse 3. Now, it's important when you hear this word that you don't think of an exam, that you don't think of a a pass-fail grading type of situation, as if the Lord is the schoolmaster in the sky who has sent you something difficult just to see how you respond, and he's there with his checklist ready to, to write your report card. In the gospel, we believe that your report is already in. (laughs) And by grace, it's already been declared that you are his child, and with you he is is well pleased. So when we're talking about testing, we're not talking about about an exam. Rather, the term that's used here is the term that's used to describe that process wherein metal is refined. 
So if you think about a lump of gold ore that has lots of dirt and rust and all sorts of dross on it, and then it's placed into the fire and subjected to the flames, and the flames burn off all those external things that are are worthless and meaningless until all that's left is this pure, beautiful, strong gold. That's the term that's been used here. And in the same way we're being told, the Lord is telling us that the flame won't hurt us. The, the purpose is to consume the dross, to refine the gold. And we see the result of this testing in verse 4. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. One preacher says, suffering has a way of turbocharging Christian growth. Suffering is a way of turbocharging Christian growth. Suffering can make you more of a mature person. Suffering has the ability to, to equip you for every task. Suffering has the purpose of turning you into gold. Here's the reality. And people who have been through much suffering just know that this is true. That suffering just, it just has a way of making you better at life. At life period. Why? Because it makes you a little less arrogant. And it makes you a little less obnoxious. And it makes you a little less judgmental. And a little less harsh. And a little less reactionary. And even as it does those things to you. Even if you endure that trial. It makes you a little more compassionate. And a little more thoughtful. And a little more patient. And it gives you a little more perspective. And it just fosters these kinds of maturity within you so that the way you are as a husband and a wife, a son or a daughter, a friend and a colleague, it's just better. I was thinking about it in terms of um, when you have your first child, you know you have your first child and they grow and everything's great and then at some point it hits you, I should have been much nicer to my mother. (laughs) You know? You just go through the, child, the trial of child <laughs> of having children and realize, I should have been much nicer. Why? Because the experiences you have had have given you a wisdom and insight, a perspective that changes now the way that you are. Suffering has that effect upon us. And that's why, that's what makes sense of verse 2 when it says, count it all joy when you experience these things. Count it all joy when you experience things. Now, it's important he doesn't say, experience these things as joy. When suffering comes, when trial comes, it is difficult. And we're not mindless Stoics who smile and say, you know, hey, you know, God reigns, it's all good, right? No, we experience the full range of human emotion and enter into that suffering and experience it to its depths. But we are able to count it, reckon it, consider it joy, because we know that while hard in the moment, it is bearing fruit for the future. We know that it is as spiritual chemotherapy to our souls. Feels like it will kill us, but will ultimately save our lives. That's the purpose of trials. And so when suffering comes, (laughs) on one hand, we're humbled, right? We're humbled because apparently all the dross has not yet been consumed. Apparently there are things in me that the Lord's still working on. Apparently, there are things in you that the Lord has greater designs for. Apparently, we are not a people who have yet made it. And Christians, more than anyone in all the world, should be the humblest people on the face of the earth. 
challenging, but also not just, um, not just a challenging, humbling thing, but an encouraging thing. Because in you, the Lord sees gold. <laughs> in you, he sees something that is, that is worth refining. In you, he sees the beauty of, of what he created and the beauty of what you will be for all eternity. And he is committed to doing what it takes in order that that gold might become more present and apparent in your life. The purpose of suffering, to make us, to make us gold. Thirdly and finally in our text, we see a couple of things to, to help us navigate suffering. Now, of course, understand suffering and trials are, are difficult and complex. There's no be-all and end-all, one-size-fits-all to all your struggle and all your suffering. But these are helpful tools, helpful insights that were given in the Word. The first from verses 5 through 8, the second from in verses 12 through 15. We'll return to the verses we skipped over in, in another sermon. The first thing we see when it comes to how to navigate suffering is in verse 5. We need to seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, this was really interesting to me as I studied it this week because I'm sort of familiar with those verses and I'd heard them a lot. And you'll often hear people pray those words. Uh, you know, if they don't know what to do. Lord, we, do, we, we lack wisdom. We come to you asking for wisdom. And I'd never realized, though, before that it's in the direct context of suffering that these words come. In other words, yes, it's a good thing to seek wisdom, but it's a particularly good thing to seek wisdom, and we're commanded to seek wisdom in the context of trial or suffering. So when you are struggling, when you don't know what to do, precisely when you're at your wit's end, is exactly the time that the Lord says, yes, come and talk to me. Come and talk to me. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him seek God. What is wisdom? One commentator defines it as that penetrating understanding of how things work that gives you practical direction for how to live. Penetrating understanding of how things work that results in that practical direction in how to live. It's understanding life from God's perspective and therefore having a kind of skill in living, a skill in decision-making, a skill to, to navigate your difficult circumstances. And that's what we need when we're in a struggle or a difficulty. We need the wisdom to know what to do next. And James says, if any of you lack it, everyone should at this point think of themselves. Um, if, if you read that verse and think of someone else, you're a bigger fool than you know. Okay? Um, if any of you lack it, yes, me and you, but me first. Right? If any of you lack it, let him ask God. You see, again, the purpose of the trial. The trial is designed to drive us to God. It's designed to push us into his arms. That when the struggle comes and we don't know what to do, we go running for him. And the gospel just does this work in our lives. It's just how the gospel works in that it attacks that mirage of self-sufficiency. And just when we are realizing it is all ashes and dust, our self-sufficiency, just when we are realizing our complete dependency upon God, just when we realize that we don't have it all together, and just as we run into his arms instead, that is when grace works. Because grace is for the weak. Grace is for the struggling. Grace is for those in need. And what happens when we do go running to him? When we do ask God, look again in verse 5. Let's just work through it. Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. I love those words, and there's so much in them. First of all, he's the God who gives generously. And I love that about God. If God's serving you ice cream, your plate overflows. Right? If God pours your cup, it overflows. If God's giving you wisdom for suffering, it overflows. 
He's the God who just is intrinsically generous. And he, can't, he almost can't help himself. It's in his very nature, it's in his very being to be kind and gracious and go the extra mile for his children. It's just the way that he is. So don't approach him then as if he's stingy. Don't approach him as if he's going to be, give you the furrowed brow and, and be disapproving. Approach him as the one who loves to give lavishly. And who does he give to? Ah, oh, words of water. To all without reproach. That's really good news. Because I don't really have a hard time believing that God would help some people, you know, especially the good people. But what about the bad people? (laughs) God going to help us too? Well, yes, he's going to help all. And he's going to help us without reproach. Now, aren't those beautiful words? Because God knows, and we know, we know all the skeletons in our closets that God could pull out to say, I'm not helping you this time. How dare you come to me for help in light of this thing that you just did? In light of the thing that you've done again and again and again. In light of this pattern that has controlled your life. How, how dare you come and ask me for help? But God doesn't do that. He gives generously to all without reproach. Come treating us with undeserved grace. Because that's the kind of God that he is. And so our verse ends. Um, if you lack wisdom, ask him. He'll give generously to you without reproach. And it will be given to him. The promise of Scripture here, and it's kind of one of those promises, it's too hard to believe, so you think maybe I don't understand it. Um, But the promise is, if you're struggling with something, and you ask the Lord for wisdom so that you might know what to do, he will answer that prayer. It's just in his nature and in his character to do that. Through those prayers, through the Scripture through discussion and fellowship with one another, through the working of circumstances, slowly but slowly, the Lord will enable you to know what it is you ought to do next. Now understand what the promise is, because I don't think the promise is saying, if you've got a problem, go to God, and he'll show you the end from the beginning, and you'll just know exactly what you should do and the trajectory that you should be on. Uh, one preacher says that wisdom and suffering is much more like rock climbing. I don't know if you've ever been rock climbing. My, my dentist is a rock climber, and so it's one of the things that we... Well, we don't really talk about it because I'm lying. (laughs) So he talks about it and I kind of, you know, it's really awkward, isn't it? Because they ask you questions and you're kind of like, anyway. Um, It's one of the things that he has monologues about while I'm in the chair. And then one day he invited me uh, to go with him and he and I went rock climbing. And it's great because you you hang on the wall, okay? And you have, you know, your feet, both footholds and and, and handholds. And then all you're looking for is the next one. So you find that next handhold, and you get hold of it. And then you kind of look down, and you find just that next foothold. And once you've got that steady and in place, you look for that next handhold, and you reach up and you grab. And slowly but slowly, one step at a time, you make your way up that wall. And that's what the experience of wisdom and suffering is like. It's not this experience where you just suddenly know everything that you're meant to do. It's this relational wrestling where step by step and moment by moment the next step is revealed and as you take that step the Lord shows up and he shows you the step after that and moment by moment by moment he's faithful until suddenly you realize I've scaled this wall I've scaled the wall because he was with me at every moment 
Now, we should say a word or two about verses 6 through 8, because in my heart, they threatened to undo all the good things I just felt in my heart when I said all of what I just said. Um, because it says, uh, read it with me, but let him ask in faith. So if you want wisdom, ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven, tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, isn't this discouraging, <laughs> right? We said, the Lord will give wisdom. You just have to ask him. It's a promise. But if you doubt, he won't. And what does that do to my doubting heart, right? It brings fear and trepidation. And I'm right back where I was before. But I think our, our understanding of these, these words is, is greatly helped by two of the specific words that are used in verses 6 through 8. First of all, uh, we see that the term doubt isn't, as originally written in Greek, used to communicate this intellectual um, uncertainty. So it's not saying, when you ask, you've got to be really sure that God's going to answer. You've got to have like faith to name it and claim it, right? Health and wealth. If you believe, you will receive, okay? Um, that's, that's not what's being said here. Rather, this, this term isn't used of, a, of an intellectual doubt, but if you turn the page, you'll see it appear again in verse uh, 4 of chapter 2, where it's translated distinctions. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So it's not about an intellectual dis- uh, struggle as much as it's about being torn between two choices, making a distinction between two things. The second clue we get is uh, further down in verse 8. Verse 8, where we read that the person who does this, the person who is caught between these distinctions, is a double-minded man. Now, this is a really interesting word, the word double-minded here. It's actually a word that that James has coined. James has made this term up. It appears nowhere in the Bible apart from in the book of James. And literally what he's done is combined two words that uh, we could literally translate as as two-souled, a double-souled person. In other words, it's someone who has just great conflict, great inner turmoil or conflict. And so when we're talking about doubt here, we're not talking about someone who isn't sure the Lord will deliver. We're talking about someone who comes to the Lord, still trying to make distinctions in their mind, comes to the Lord as a deeply conflicted person. Now, this makes a whole lot of sense when you just think about how you come to the Lord, or how, when, I, when I think about how I come to the Lord. Because on one hand, I come needing wisdom to make it through. And on the other hand, I come just asking him to do what I want him to do, which are really not very often the same thing. You know, you hear the Lord say, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, plans for future and hope. And I say, yes, Lord, but I know the plans I have for me. I know the plans I have for me. Yes, plans that are equally good in my own mind for welfare and not for evil to give me future and a hope. And as a pastor, you see this all the time where people come to you for counsel and what they really want you to do is tell them what they already think, you know? They really, but they want a verse for it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I'll go see the Bible guy. <laughs> He'll give me a verse for my opinion. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and you give them a different verse. <laughs> And then they go away and do whatever they were going to do in the first place, right? And how I would love to say I only see it as a pastor and that I never see it in my own soul. (laughs) 
How do I wish that were true? But I do this all the time. I come to the Lord, wrestling between really wanting his will, but also really wanting my will. Wrestling between seeking first his kingdom and seeking first all these other things that were intended just to be added as well. We're torn between choices. We're a conflicted people. And the consequences of being that way are then spelled out in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, when you're torn this way, you're like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by every wind of desire. Every temptation, every mood, every fad that comes upon you will buffet you in a different direction, making you, verse 8, an unstable person. But secondly, and more to our point just now, when you come to the Lord with these conflicted desires, look at the words that it uses. They're, they're scary. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That person will not, should not suppose they'll receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because God has this unruly habit of not giving us the wisdom and insight that we need just to pursue our own selfish desires. It turns out that he loves us enough to say no when we want things that aren't in accordance with his will and therefore aren't good for us. James is saying that grace works and this prayer is answered when we come to the end of ourselves. When we come to the end of ourselves and recognize our weakness and our brokenness and cast ourselves completely in dependency upon his faithfulness, upon his grace to us. That is how the gospel works. It works for those who are weak. And so as a people, we learn through suffering itself to depend less on our own self-sufficiency. Instead, depend wholly upon the Lord. And in that moment, we find grace for the weak. So that's the first thing, to navigate suffering and seek wisdom. Second thing, verses 12 through 15, and we see it there in verse 12, remain steadfast, remain steadfast. See, our trials are designed to drive us to God, but they don't necessarily do that. And that's really the point of verses 13 through 15. You can use trial to, to blame God, verse 13, and then give in to temptation, verse 14, and run straight into destruction and even your own death, verse 15. In order for trials to have this purifying effect and in order for these trials to bless us and drive us to God, we've got to, verse 12, remain steadfast. For when one has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This term steadfast means to be, to be patient, to persevere, to stay in the pocket, to hang in there no matter what comes. How do we do that? Our verse tells us by looking to the crown of life. When you have remained steadfast under trial, you will receive the crown of life. In other words, it is worth being patient and persevering and hanging in the pocket for. A couple of illustrations on this. First, when I had the great privilege of going to meet with a former NBC member and her children while her husband was on deployment. And I go into the house, and there's kids everywhere, and there's just great fun and energy, and, you know, all seems well. But while they're off playing, I sit down with her, and I say, you know, how are, how are, things, how are things going? How are you dealing with the busyness and the stress and the strain and the loneliness of this deployment? And she shared, you know, a little bit about that. But then she said, but you know what? It's worth the wait. He's worth the wait. 
And I love that line. The reason that she's able to hang in, the reason that she's able to persevere, the reason that she's able to be steadfast is because she knows what's coming on the other side. She knows that her groom will return and the weight will have all been worth it. And so the knowledge of what's coming enables us to have patience in the time being. Better example, best example. If you have your Bible over, open, turn over one page. Hebrews 12. Best example is steadfastness. Verse 1. Surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses that's so profoundly impactful to us. Then verse 2. We look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endures the cross, and that very same word is used when we're told to be steadfast. In other words, Christ was steadfast on the cross. Why was he steadfast on the cross? Well, let's read the answer. For the joy that was set before him. In other words, he was prepared to persevere through that suffering and that trial of his own because he knew what was on the other side, that the redemption and the salvation of his children. For him, he looks at you and says, it's worth it. And for him, he looks at you and says, he or she, it's worth it. And so you see how grace starts to work in our hearts here, that we are called to be steadfast in light of the one who has been steadfast for us. And so when we come to him and say, Jesus, should I endure? And he says, yes, because I endured for you. And we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you know, can I hang in there? And he says, yes, you can, because I hung on the cross for you. And you say, Jesus, will this ever end? Is there life at the other side of this? And he says, yes, there's the crown of life that, that I rose to give you. One commentator says, never, ever allow um, your Savior and your suffering to be separated. Never allow your Savior and your suffering to be separated. We are able to remain steadfast, not because we've got some crazy strength of our own or because we're going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We are able to be steadfast because another has been steadfast for us. And so we now wait with patient perseverance because we know the beauty of what is to come. That to us, it's worth it. That to us, he is worth it. The certainty of suffering, it's not if, but when. We want to be ready. The purpose of suffering, to turn us into pure gold. And then, how we can navigate suffering, seeking wisdom, remaining steadfast. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray particularly for all those who are just feel really caught up right now in the middle of, of trial or suffering. Perhaps secret struggles, perhaps known public struggles. There's people who are at their wits' ends because of the world, because of others, because of themselves. I pray that you would encourage them right now that at their wits' end is exactly where they need to be. Because where <laughs> their wits end, grace begins. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the certainty of suffering that drives us to you. 
And we thank you that your purpose for it is good. And we thank you that you will give us wisdom and enable us to remain steadfast, that we might make it through these trials to the other side. We pray it all in Jesus' perfect and matchless name. Amen.